The Dig is a podcast produced in conjunction with Jacobin Magazine. And yes, Jacobin is a print publication, not just a place for online commentary, but long-form serious print journalism and socialist analysis. The magazine is released quarterly and runs around 160 pages, filled with award-winning design and the ideas that movements need to thrive. Dig listeners can join more than 70,000 Jacobin subscribers supporting this vital work for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's very extensive archive. I've gotten a sneak peek at their new issue on conspiracy theories out in May, and I highly recommend that you check it out. First-time subscribers only, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin. That's bit.ly slash digjacobin. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. A decade ago, the news was dominated by the opioid crisis. Escalating waves of fatal overdoses, first from prescription OxyContin, then from heroin, followed by extraordinarily powerful fentanyl. It was, the discourse went, a new face of addiction, that face being a white and often middle-class one. But in reality, this was the third medical addiction crisis to hit white middle-class Americans. My interview today is on the book Whiteout, How Racial Capitalism Changed the Color of Opioids in America, with its authors, Helena Hansen, Jules Netherland, and David Hertzberg. What they show is that it was American capitalism, in its illusory promises of whiteness, that not only decisively shaped this reaction to the opioid crisis, but that actually made the opioid crisis in the first place. And it all, they write, quote, drew on a century-old system of narcotic segregation in the U.S., in which some drugs become illegal through association with non-white users, and other drugs are legal and are deemed medicines reserved for white and middle-class consumers. In short, a system in which the whiteness of certain drugs medicalizes them. That system has rendered poor people vulnerable to criminalization, incarceration, and second-class medical care, while at the same time, ironically and horribly, leaving white middle-class people whose whiteness and class status was supposed to protect them from addiction wide open to this prescription drug crisis. Today, overdose deaths are at record levels, but increasingly it is black people dying these days and the crisis has receded from the headlines. That so-called new, white, more sympathetically portrayed face of the opioid crisis did create the political space to advance progressive harm reduction measures. But that window may be closing, and the overall punishing and lethal logic of the drug war remains in place, and keeps incentivizing cartels to turn to more potent, and thus more compact and lucrative drugs like fentanyl. Indeed, even in the case of the medical treatment for opioid addiction, it wasn't just that the sympathetic image of white addiction created space for a more harm reduction-oriented approach, it also ensured that this more humane form of treatment reproduced the classed and raced divides of American capitalism. And what I'm talking about here is buprenorphine. You've probably heard of it. It's an opioid maintenance drug known by its brand name Suboxone prescribed by a doctor and taken pretty much like any other medication in the privacy of one's own home. It was only in the year 2000 that this all became possible, 
the authors write, it, quote, reversed 80 years of federal prohibition against private physician opioid maintenance for opioid dependence. Up until that moment, the only way to be legally prescribed an opioid to treat opioid addiction was to go to the extraordinarily carceral environment of a methadone clinic every single day. The advantages of buprenorphine are obvious, but outrageously, buprenorphine has been disproportionately prescribed to the white and well-to-do, those with commercial health insurance and a family doctor. By contrast, poor people disproportionately of color cannot access buprenorphine and are still stuck in that carceral methadone system. This is a fascinating and historically rich discussion, and the upshot is that in order to save and improve everyone's lives, we must get rid of this two-tiered, racialized system of American drug control that separates regulated medical markets from policed and punished prohibition markets. What's more, we must struggle to overcome a racist capitalist system that pushes people toward dangerous forms of drug use, turns pharmaceuticals into an industry oriented toward profit rather than human well-being, and polices and punishes those pushed to the bottom of our economic and medical orders. Briefly, I put a ton of work into every one of these episodes, as does everyone who helps put them together, and you can probably tell that by listening. But... I can only do this for a living and pay everyone else who works on this show because listeners like you, listening right now, support The Dig at Patreon.com. If you are listening now and can afford to contribute, please do so. We do not force you to contribute by paywalling episodes because we want everyone to listen regardless of your ability to pay. So if you can chip in, please do. We will send you a book or books in the mail, a tote bag, or a mug if you contribute at least $10 a month. A contribution of any size at all, even a dollar a month, gets you our weekly newsletter by email. Please contribute. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Please step up and support this podcast if you depend on us for analysis, because we do indeed depend on you to keep this thing up and running. Okay, here's Helena Hansen, Jules Netherland, and David Hertzberg, the authors of Whiteout, How Racial Capitalism Changed the Color of Opioids in America. Helena Hansen is an addiction psychiatrist and anthropologist and professor of psychiatry and anthropology at the University of California, Los Angeles. Jules Netherland is a sociologist and policy advocate and managing director of the Department of Research and Academic Engagement at the Drug Policy Alliance. David Hertzberg is a professor of history at the State University of New York at Buffalo. Helena Hansen, Jules Netherland, and David Hertzberg. Welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, hello. Opioid overdoses have reached record highs in the past couple years, but it also seems to me like media attention to the crisis, which there was really quite a lot of at one time, it seems to have peaked maybe half a decade ago. Where are we today in terms of the long arc of this opioid crisis, materially in terms of the prevalence and social distribution of opioid use and fatal overdoses? And then where are we at politically and socially? Where where does it sit in our seemingly ever more crowded collective imagination? So I think that the attention, media attention to what was called the opioid crisis at that time, it did peak uh, about 10, 15 years into the new millennium when the image of the white suburban, you know, 
Oxycontin-addicted person was really in the forefront. And there was a whole slew of newspaper and magazine headlines that had new face of addiction in the title. And this is something that actually Jules and I were able to verify quantitatively and qualitatively back in the day, because over 10 years ago, we did a, a newspaper content analysis in which we demonstrated that this was the trend, that there were there was a real uptick in the headlines, new face of addiction or suburban opioid crisis. And it was all coded language for the shock and surprise that white people, in particular, affluent white people, you know, were dying of overdose at record rates. And it was even a gendered phenomenon. A lot of the images we found when we did a study of the imagery attached to these headlines, middle-class or affluent young white women. So kind of the exact opposite of what American media has always portrayed as the opioid or heroin addicted face. And so this was really great, juicy material for the media. Then that began to wear off. And what this team that I'm a part of has shown is that there has been a big demographic shift. I've been working with collaborators recently to use large national databases to track the race and class patterning of overdoses and geographic patterning of overdoses over time, over the past couple of decades. So in the epidemiology of drug and overdose studies, really we've come to refer to it as four waves of the crisis. Prescription grade opioids, heroin, and then fentanyl, and then now we're in the polydrug era, in which a lot of the people who are dying of overdose are found to have not only some form of opioid, most likely fentanyl, because it's ultra potent, and the cartels that had been dealing with heroin in these new markets found that it was much easier to smuggle fentanyl because it's, you know, a hundred times as potent as heroin, so much easier to smuggle and carry around. So fentanyl with its Ultrapotency is also ultra lethal, you know, and has contributed greatly to the, the acceleration of overdose deaths. But then what we're finding is increasingly some opioid is mixed with a stimulant like methamphetamine. And there are even increasing number of deaths that are quote unquote pure stimulant deaths, where people are dying of cardiac arrest, stroke, things that are associated with stimulants rather than opioids. So we who work in this field are now calling this not opioid crisis, but overdose crisis, right? And along with that, four waves of development of the type of drug involved. Also, there has been a a shift in the demographics along certain lines. We have seen a dramatic shift with accelerating overdose deaths among Black Americans. In 2020, that was the first year that Black American overdose deaths surpassed white American overdose deaths. Native American overdose deaths have been at the highest levels throughout. But of course, in our society, Native American deaths don't register. You know, Native Americans are expected to die. Many people actually believe Native Americans are extinct. I mean, that is kind of the the racial and racist um, narrative. And so it did not make headline news. And Native Americans were lost in this story about white overdose deaths. So all along, Native American deaths have been at an all-time high, and they continue to be. But now, Black American overdose deaths have surpassed white American overdose deaths. 
almost all groups are showing dramatic increases in overdose deaths over the past few years. And, and under COVID, it was particularly acute. And there are lots and lots of explanations for how COVID contributed to the acceleration of overdose deaths. One thing it did is it destabilized illegal markets incredibly because people who are trying to smuggle drugs were dealing with very shifting circumstances of law enforcement. So uh, probably there was a, a, an even larger infusion of fentanyl into the supply because fentanyl is easier to smuggle and it means if you're not certain what you're going to encounter, it's just easier to get around law enforcement. The iron law of prohibition. Exactly, exactly. So, and then people were isolated from each other. There were a lot of people who had been in treatment for opioid use disorder, quote unquote, or, you know, opioid dependence who couldn't access their treatments under COVID. Uh, They were socially isolated. There were people who had been using opioids together and could monitor each other for signs of overdose who no longer could monitor each other because they were using alone. There are just so many different reasons that COVID could have contributed to the overdose death rate. But I think the big picture is that just about every group was really heavy hit. What we've seen with regard to media coverage is that since it can no longer be represented as a white, shocking, shockingly white problem, you know, who knew white people use drugs, right? That's kind of the, you know, the reaction that journalists were able to get uh, 10, 15 years ago. Now it doesn't have the same register, you know, because now the reports are around Black American deaths from overdose, uh, Native American, Latinx deaths. That is more of an expected event. I'd add one thing that the shock of white drug use, drug addiction, and drug overdoses. Another motivation for that round of coverage is that there was a story that many people had a vested interest in telling, which was a relatively simple story about the evils of particular drug companies. If you look at the kind of cultural production around that early opioid crisis, let's call it the time, you see this demonization almost even to an individual person in Purdue Pharma. And there, it was a story of how white communities were being mistreated by modern capitalism, that they were being, that they were getting the short end of the stick. And when this story shifted to black and brown demographics, increasingly being the public face of addiction and overdose, that story is much more complicated. And it doesn't serve the interests of the kind of Uh, people whose money powers journalism. And so that's another reason why you get uh, a reduction in in media attention, I think. In some ways, things haven't changed significantly, right? We're still seeing a real attachment to the sort of failed drug war policies of the past. We see that with like scheduling of fentanyl and then the emergence of, as you were saying, you know, um, the iron law of prohibition. Now we're seeing even more dangerous drugs like xylazine hit the scene. Here in Rhode Island, it just has blown up big time. Yeah, it, you know, and that's that's old drug war tactics, right? We're going to uh, prohibit a substance and a, another more dangerous, potentially more dangerous one's going to emerge. And then we're going to, you know, prohibit that, right? In this sort of game of whack-a-mole that never seems to end. I will say that, you know, in that era of sort of the white, if we call it sort of the white face, white rhetoric surrounding first prescription opioids and then heroin, there, there was, I think, a moment where harm reduction, which had been so vilified for so long, got some attention. And there's been some education of the public around harm reduction strategies so that we saw the first ever sort of federal money being allocated for harm reduction, the opening of the first ever right overdose prevention centers in New York. But I will say that policy thrust of harm reduction is not widespread and it still remains very, uh, a very challenging fight. 
but I do think there was a an opening where we were we were able to talk about harm reduction in new ways with different people. Yeah, I think that's a, re- a really important point. There has been some significant shifts, even as the basic drug war logic, unfortunately remains in place. Good Samaritan laws that protect drug users who call 911 in an emergency, the widespread distribution of the overdose reversing drug naloxone. And and then, as you just mentioned, Jules, perhaps most radically, the legalization in, in New York City and Rhode Island, I have to say, first statewide, the legalization of safe consumption sites where people can use illegal drugs under the observation of medical professionals. But this was all limited. And this was all in many ways very much contingent upon the crisis being framed as as white. And as you mentioned, Helena, it was constantly framed in the news media in terms of this new face of addiction, that face being a decidedly white, often middle class, but also poor and working class, but decidedly definitely white face. And so it was either like a symbol of either how even people with so-called normal middle class lives could be touched by addiction or alternately a symbol of white workers left behind by deindustrialization and just like the the disorganizing forces of the surface economy. You all have studied this really closely. How was the crisis presented in the racially coded way that it was? What, in other words, were the codes? There were a few different sources of this complex imagery of the white opioid crisis. You're correct that only one of the threads was suburbia. There was a strong thread around suburban youth and uh, suburban soccer moms that began in the late 90s when the problems largely of OxyContin's approval in 96 as a you know minimally addictive treatment that could be very morally and legally promoted in primary care practices for moderate pain like lower back pain when when the problems attached to that really became apparent there was a precursor too this is a complex story because before OxyContin there were other opioids that had begun that trend among those who had access to private doctors. But certainly, you know, OxyContin accelerated that because Purdue Pharma really took advantage of their window to do what manufacturers of SSRI antidepressants had done a decade before, you know, to get into primary care practices. Antidepressants had been restricted to psychiatrists and specialized care, and they were hard to get, and they had a lot of side effects, you know, up until the Prozac era. And what the manufacturers of OxyContin did, and then later, products analogous to to OxyContin did was a similar strategy. Okay, now we have a safe opioid that can be prescribed by primary care physicians who traditionally had not been prescribing strong opioids like this, that had, that had been restricted to surgeons or cancer doctors for the bone pain of cancer. Now we have something that's safe for every family doctor to prescribe. So they used a similar strategy. And so that greatly accelerated what was seen and talked about as a quote unquote suburban problem. And that's of course, racially coded language for white middle-class to affluent America. And Jules can speak more to this because she did the analysis of the congressional record in the late 1990s that led to the legalization of office-based prescription of buprenorphine as an opioid maintenance treatment for opioid dependence, something that would be reversing 80 years of prohibition of that practice in this country, very heavily restricted DEA surveilled methadone clinics being the only exception to that rule of doctors not being able to maintain opioid-dependent patients on opioids as a treatment for their dependence. That was a big breakthrough. So 
essentially the rationale by the late 1990s was that there was a suburban crisis of youth, you know, that were opioid dependent. So it it happened early. But at the same time, there was, as you point out, also a discourse about hillbilly heroin. And this was the result of early marketing of OxyContin and sister products to workers, working class people who were in mining and, and manufacturing industries, and to some extent, firefighters, police department people who had actually good insurance, insurance that would pay for patented opioids and who tended to seek a lot expensive patented new treatments like um, the opioids that are being released, but also who tended to seek care for pain. Laborers who use their bodies on the front line and who have insurance, okay? That includes, you know, people who have veterans insurance. That includes people who have workers' comp. That includes, you know, working class people with access to relatively good insurance. Um, and it also includes, of course, middle-class to affluent people with good commercial insurance. And so there, there are really two different kinds of white markets from the beginning. And when we traced the history of that, we saw that pattern of marketing, the geographic marketing, the coded language. So there was the language of suburban youth, but there was also the language of working class Rust Belt Americans. And then they converged not only in greatly fueling overdose in those populations, but also in changing, in some ways, I would say reinvigorating a two-tiered drug policy that we've had in this country for a long time, where there's a criminalized tier that, you know, black and brown people who are limited to illegal markets because they don't have that access to doctors, they don't have insurance, and then the doctors have been shown not to want to prescribe opioids to them anyway. And then we have always had a medicalized tier of access to opioids and to treatment, narcotics and to treatments for narcotic dependence for people who are white and middle class and and affluent. As Helena was referencing in the congressional records surrounding the debates around the Drug Addiction Treatment Act of 2000, the kind of language that was being used by people lobbying for the bill included things like a new kind of addict, right? Um, which obviously implies an old kind of addict, and also referring to drug users that are, quote, not hardcore. So there was the suburban-urban language, but there also were these other kinds of, you know, not-so-subtle racially-coded messages, uh, you know, embedded in in the congressional record. And then the other thing I I just would add from our, our media analysis that I think is really important is it's not just who is the face of, you know, this this new kind of addiction, but there's a whole story that, that adheres to that. And one that we identified, you know, is the idea that these are innocent victims, right? Which is very, a very different framework than, than what we think about the, quote, junkies, right? Who are, you know, have moral failings and that's why they're addicted. This was like people that, you know, accidentally got addicted because they were overprescribed or, you know, they were messing around with like their parents' prescription medicines But on the flip side, when we're talking about addiction among black and brown folks, um, we did not see the same kind of one innocence, right, or the same kind of backstory, um, the lives that were lost. One of the uh, one of the racially coded languages is that things that go wrong for white people are a social problem that can and should be addressed. It's not natural. It's not inevitable. It's not just the way things are. It's an aberration that needs to be repaired. Whereas there's a naturalization of the kinds of problems when they appear in black and brown communities that 
that requires less explanation. Another problem in the book is that the sympathy accorded to white opioid users that has not been applied to black and brown drug users in the past is that it also leads to a more punitive, harsher approach to dealers, often dealers framed as people of color, which we see in the case of drug-induced homicide prosecutions where people are charged with homicide for simply selling or even just sharing drugs with someone who goes on to fatally overdose, which is something that I reported on back when I was a reporter. And it's this really twisted dynamic when the more sympathetic the user, the more racist and demonizing the portrayal and treatment of the dealer is, both in terms of these prosecutions, which are incredibly devastating, and also on the political level. You reference that infamous incident from 2016 when Maine's then far-right governor Paul LePage described out-of-state dealers as, quote, guys with the name D-Money Smoothie Shifty, and then said, quote, half the time they impregnate a young white girl before they leave. And it's even become core to anti-immigrant politics in the U.S. with Trump and others pointing to fentanyl as a key rationale for shutting down the U.S.-Mexico border. There's this racialized bifurcation of sympathetic and unsympathetic drug users. And then there's this other thing going on, which is the drug dealer. You're absolutely right that that, you know, quote, user, quote, dealer dividing line is racially coded and I think has become even more so. What's true is that we know there's not a bright line, right, between people who use drugs and people who sell them. And so I think part of part of the work is deconstructing that notion that that those are not the same people because they often are the same people. The political impetus to, you know, quote, go after dealers, um, people will tell you, well, we're trying to go after, you know, kingpins and, and top level dealers. In fact, who's caught up in criminal persecution of, of those folks is, is, again, low level dealers who, again, are often people who use drugs, right? And I think part of it is like, we need to tr- stop treating what are social problems as criminal problems. You know, I think fundamentally that's where we go wrong. And we talk about this in the book, like the idea that we're going to solve the problem of drug use and addiction through criminal justice interventions is one that has has failed this country for for decades and is failing this country now. This issue of sympathy and and what is sympathy, there, there are different kinds of sympathy and sympathy can be used as a policing tactic. Think about the, the Jim Crow system, racial system in the South, in the, in the U.S. Uh, for much of the 20th century that was premised in some ways on, on the idea that white women were sympathetic figures who needed to be protected from black men who wanted to rape them. And this, this sympathy, it wasn't true sympathy. It was policing white women's sexuality and it was policing black men. So that one thing you can do is think about what you mean when you have sympathy for drug users and and not allow your sympathy to be a, a tool of policing and not to and to be careful in how you think about and phrase and put into action that that sympathy. And the the other thing I would say is that one unexpected danger of this drug pusher rhetoric that that pops up in the world of pharmaceuticals is pharmaceutical industry is so powerful and trying to do things to constrain their pursuit of profit and to kind of tame them to the public good is so hard that it's often really tempting to to use this language of there are these drug they are drug pushers 
And it can be effective, right? It, it's got shock value. It's got a lot of power. It's evocative. But what it does is it reinforces the idea that there is such a thing as a drug pusher, that it is the worst thing imaginable. And it really gets a lot of its power from this racist tradition. And so it's like a, it's a sword that does a lot of damage to our cause, you know, and it's understandable why it can be appealing because it's so difficult to take on a big industry, but you have to be creative and find other ways to make corporate greed visible and evocative. One thing we try to do in the book is show the complexities of the pharma critique because there's a simple version of the pharma critique that I think is very appealing to journalists and it's appealing to, um, you know, people who've been affected by the overdose crisis directly, especially those white families who are aggressively marketed to. It's, you know, it's very appealing and convenient that it's a matter of the greed of, you know, a family, <laughs> um, the Sacklers or, you know, a, a group, an oligarchic group of pharma executives when actually what we're trying to track in the book is the very systemic nature of this that, you know, over and predetermines this outcome. Not only are pharmaceutical companies deeply entrenched in a whole system of racial capitalism that rests on whiteness when it comes to consumer markets, primary consumer markets for newly patented biotech, so that this opioid crisis is only, you know, the, the tip of the iceberg. It's just ridden throughout systemic and harmful to white Americans, <laughs> along with black and brown Americans. But the logic of criminalization versus medicalization as the only two poles, the only two ways to approach the overdose crisis, and that the more humane and the more enlightened approach being to really focus on medication development and getting people in to see a doctor and maintaining them on medications, which has been the primary alternative to criminalization that's been offered up to white Americans primarily, that completely overlooks what Jules just opened up with, the nature of social inequalities and racial capitalism that is punishing to all. You know, there are studies, comparative international studies of health outcomes and life expectancies comparing the U.S. to its 17 peer countries, other industrialized nations. We rank highest in what we spend on healthcare, right? Almost 20% of our GDP on healthcare. That's a shocking amount. It's way above any other country. And our health outcomes are the worst among industrialized countries. And if you were only to take the richest quartile of every country, all 17 industrialized nations, actually the richest Americans have shorter lives than the richest uh, Germans, the richest Japanese, the richest people in more equal countries, countries where income is more equally distributed. The, the sense that we make of this is that the, the very serious, serious, severe inequalities that we have in this country that are largely based on a form of racial capitalism that is nowadays quite driven by biotech and pharma industries and healthcare industries more broadly because they're such a big part of the economy. Those are lethal. <laughs> you know, they, they really they shorten our life expectancy, including the life expectancy of the richest Americans. So I think that the simplified version of there were a few evil, bad pharma companies that somehow outwitted the regulators and didn't do ethical business practice that need to be punished and singled out. That simplified story overlooks all of the systemic forces that to get a better health outcome in this country, we would need to take on head on, 
You know, there's just no other way of improving our health statistics, just even leaving overdose deaths aside. There's so many other causes of death that are linked to our utterly toxic racial capitalist system. Let's turn to the history of the opioid epidemic, starting in 1996 when Purdue Pharmaceuticals won FDA approval for OxyContin, a drug they promised did not pose addiction risks because of its patented time-release formula and because it was only supposed to be prescribed to so-called trustworthy patients. Remarkably, it was that time-release formula, if I have this right, a formula that ultimately turned out to do nothing to deter abuse. That was the factor that made OxyContin different from standard oxycodone, and thus the source of Purdue's patent and the massive profits to come. But Purdue was wrong on both counts. Let's start with the time-release formula. Why was it supposed to work, and why did it not? All of this stuff happened in a context. So the 1990s happened to be the decade of the brain. And at the beginning of the 1990s, President Bush I declared the 90s the decade of the brain. This was on the heels of the Human Genome Project. And the belief at the federal level was that this was an exciting time to monetize these discoveries that things that we had thought of as social, (laughs) like addiction, as social or as moral failings could actually be tracked to some kind of genetic code. They could be their problems that could be cracked with a new molecule, such as a pharmaceutical or perhaps a biotech device. So there was kind of a feeding frenzy on the heels of the human genome having been sequenced around all of the commercial and clinical possibilities from this. And so there was this strong discourse at the federal level that the brain was the next frontier in this. Okay, so the human genome had been sequenced. The next frontier was to map out the brain on the anatomical and the molecular level and crack the problems of addiction, of learning and educational outcomes and intelligence. Um, There were just so many claims being made about the new science of the brain. And so that was one thing that was in a backdrop. And one thing it did was it emboldened the National Institute on Drug Abuse, NIDA, to really double down on molecular causes, um, genetic causes, also at the neuron receptor level, molecular explanations and um, solutions for addiction. And, you know, they got that directive directly from the federal government to do that. And they got an infusion of funds to do that. But this was in the context of commercial opportunity. And so one thing that also happened during the decade of the brain was deregulation of pharma industries and a cozying up between FDA and manufacturers, pharmaceutical manufacturers. So all of that stuff played into the OxyContin moment. You know, the field was really ripe because at the federal level, there were so many diehard believers that, you know, we were going to show in this decade of the brain that addiction is a molecular problem and we're going to come up with molecular solutions. Because when Purdue Pharma came forward saying, look, we have this miraculous new formulation that takes advantage of the best science, you know, and we need to get it out because there's an emergency. There's this emergency of a national epidemic of pain that's not adequately treated, right? All of these things converge to, is a perfect storm, if you will, to, to open the gates because no one stopped to ask, wait a minute, okay, there's this time release formulation that is supposed to 
it has a pinhole in it, essentially, and only a tiny amount of Oxycontin can come out at any given time. And that's why it's supposed to last for 12 hours. And it doesn't have that, you know, reinforcing pleasurable effect of giving a rush to the brain of a lot of oxycodone opioid, right? No one stopped to ask, well, wait a minute, what happens to this capsule once it gets out into the community and people figure out, I could just take a bottle and, you know, crush this capsule and get out the opioid. No one stopped to ask that. Well, that's, I mean, and that's a little bit where the history comes in there. So, so right, opioids, we've known opioids have been addicted for thousands of years. Why did nobody ask that question? And that's where race is the only place that you can look to to understand how so many well-intentioned largely white people, accepted this claim. And this is the figure of the trustworthy patient. This is the figure of the trustworthy patient. And here there's going to be two historical contexts that you need to know. One is that OxyContin was not the first pharmaceutical advertised or attempted to be marketed as a non-addictive opioid. As a matter of fact, throughout the 20th century, there's been this long parade of pharmaceutical companies introducing the next miracle opioid and saying, this one is non-addictive. We've you know cracked the code. And in each of these cases, the federal government had the tools to say, no, no, uh, our job is to protect these white consumers who we call patients from this kind of unregulated access to to opioids, which could be dangerous. And it's not until uh, this moment in the 1990s, through a coming together of several different historical dynamics, that a company is able to break through with these claims. There had just been a racialized drug panic over so-called crack cocaine, in which addiction had become relentlessly associated with racialized communities, with poor communities in central cities, to the point that addiction came to seem to be an attribute of those communities, almost as much as, if not more, than drugs themselves. To sell OxyContin in a certain way was to sell whiteness itself, like to sell the idea that white patients were um, somehow less vulnerable because of having perhaps less innate flaws. But so you still need a reason to sell these patients a whole lot of opioids. And here, opioid manufacturers, they didn't actually invent new techniques. There's bog standard industry practice to uh, sell sickness, to kind of latch onto real human needs and amp them up in ways and, and channel them so that the solution to those human needs uh, seems to be their product. The story about how pain came to be one of these uh, one of these uh, sold sicknesses comes from the brilliant work of Keith Waylu, a historian of medicine who wrote Pain of Political History. And essentially, uh, beginning after World War II, there had been incredible political battles over what to do about chronic pain. And why after World War II? Because so many people who were uh, active in that conflict suffered from chronic pain. This was less a medical debate than a political debate between people who felt that those experiencing this kind of suffering needed assistance, uh, probably from the state, versus those who were worried that providing assistance to people makes them dependent and creates learned helplessness. And he shows how different medical ideas like learned helplessness were animated by these political debates. And In the battles of the 1980s, as the Reagan revolution was trying to cut the roles of people who received state support for chronic pain, for example, 
these were brutal battles that did damage to both political both political groups. And the opioid industry was able to step in and say, hey, you know what? We can create a compromise here. Liberals, you think something needs to be done for people who are suffering. Okay, we can do that. Conservatives, you don't want the government to be the one providing that support. You want it to be through the private market. Well, look, we have this new technology, the, a, a miracle drug that's coming out of the decade of the brain, and it's safe for the white patient's that uh, we have in mind because they're not likely to get addicted because they're health seeking. And so we have a solution here through the private market. It'll be less expensive. And this agreement produced this, uh, this belief in an idea that kind of flew in the face of many centuries of evidence that if you flood communities with opioids, there's going to be an increase in addiction in one way or another. But that, as Helena was saying, nobody asked the question of what happens when these leave the medicine cabinet because of that belief that, well, people in white communities are health-seeking. Why would it leave the medicine cabinet? There's no reason for that. That was such a fundamental belief that this idea was even advanced that if legitimate, trustworthy pain patients exhibited classic signs of drug addiction and drug seeking, such as asking for specific medications by name, uh, asking for increased dosage, all these these classic signs of of drug addiction, that it was in fact evidence of what was termed pseudo addiction. That really blew my mind. Well, and what's fascinating about this is that that's often held up, you know, rightly as this perfidious big pharma effort to sell more drugs. But it also kind of exposes the way that what we call addiction is so, so many of the harms associated with the addiction come from social injustices and oppression to the point that if you have someone who's buying a regulated drug from someone who cares about them and in a system that recognizes the inevitable side effects of long-term opioid use and tries to care for people experiencing them, then it doesn't look like, quote, addiction, because it isn't. Addiction is this social and political construction on top of inevitable aspects of opioid use. And so in this weird way, they're right. And it just exposes the horrors of this segregated system where some people who are using drugs and experiencing the absolutely predictable effects of those drugs are situated and treated such that those effects become fatal, they become disastrous, and uh, they, they, don't, they don't have to be. So really, it's a story that's mind-boggling in both ways. And, and there's yet another aspect of the story that's really interesting. It's also the creativity of pharma marketers when it comes to diagnoses, inventing new diagnoses. And it's, it's not a new strategy, you know, even the Prozac era involved selling SSRIs by redefining what we, I'm a psychiatrist, so I can speak as a we. <laughs> Psychiatrists actually changed the way that they did diagnoses around the pre-marketing, unbranded marketing by pharma around this new class of safe antidepressants, Prozac, other SSRIs. So things that we in the past had categorized as anxiety disorders suddenly became depression. And that was pre-marketing, unbranded marketing for the new class of antidepressants that were going to hit the market on the heels of bad consumer experience with anti-anxiety drugs like Valium and Xanax, you know, that had been 
shown to come along with all the other problems of, you know, dependence creating molecules. So, so this is an old pattern that one of the go-to strategies in pharmaceutical marketing is to do unbranded advertising, meaning you till the field without mentioning the name of a drug by convincing prescribers, patients, the public, that there's an epidemic of a certain kind or a very serious occurrence of a certain new kind of diagnosis. And you reformulate the diagnosis. So it shows that addiction, now we're referring to it as substance use disorder. <laughs> and there's a pharma linkage to that shift as well. Addiction also falls into this. And so the creativity involved is the pseudo-addiction diagnosis that was something that could be applied. It could be applied to these quote-unquote trustworthy white patients because it wasn't that the doctors who prescribed to them were wrong or that the pharmaceutical companies that advertised them as trustworthy were wrong. It's that they were misdiagnosed. So you can shift the diagnosis. It's not a, it's not a new strategy, but it's you know kind of remarkably creative when you trace the history of the new class of opioids that were sold in the 90s moving forward. One thing to emphasize that is so important is that these things worked because they were building on real human suffering. Like the suffering is not fake. You know, and Helena was talking about channeling the response to that suffering in ways that will be profitable and that will sustain existing social hierarchies. It, it wouldn't work if, if anxiety didn't exist or if depression didn't capture, wasn't able to capture people's imagination of, okay, what I can identify, what I'm experiencing seems like that. So I just, I just wanted to emphasize that. You mentioned Purdue and other pharmaceutical companies marketing. We should pause here to emphasize that Purdue and other companies spend a lot of money pushing prescription opioids. You write that Purdue spent $500 million from 1996 to, to 2001 alone on pharmaceutical detailing, which is when pharmaceutical companies send sales reps directly to doctors' offices, and that's just one slice of just a, a massive expenditure. Yeah, the part that's most visible to us is advertising. So when we think of marketing, we think of salespeople or or, or literal advertisements. But one of the most effective ways that that opioids were sold was through working the medical industrial complex, so to speak, that medicine in America is a largely self-governing profession. And there are all of these more or less private bodies who are tasked with governing medicine. They decide what, what the standard of care is. They decide uh, when individual doctors have followed that standard of care or not. They are the ones who provide and the ones who can take away uh, licenses to practice. And so a lot of these organizations accredit, for example, hospitals, but without their accreditation, you can't get, say, Medicare and Medicaid dollars. So their standards are quasi-governmental, even though they are not a governmental body. And one of the things you see is that tons of pharma money went to tons of organizations from the American Geriatric Society to state medical boards and pharmacy boards and nursing boards. And that is invisible to many of us outside of the medical enterprise, but that had an enormous impact because that's how physicians are governed. Let's put it this way. If you are a good and conscientious physician, those are the organizations you are paying attention to so that you will be a good physician. And when they get subverted to becoming marketers of opioids, that really moves pills probably more so than advertisements and maybe even more so than sales reps. One really critical piece around the politics of pain that we should discuss is, is how the very understanding of human capacity to suffer pain has long been deeply shaped by racism. You write, quote, 
Oxycontin and marketing capitalized on a concept of pain in the U.S. that had already been racialized for centuries. It's a concept that stretches back from, from slavery through more recent decades, scrutiny of poor people claiming disability payments. Just how powerful is this discourse? How did it become integrated into American medicine? And how did this racist ideology not only lead to the longtime mistreatment of black patients, but also in this case, set up white people for the opioid overdose crisis? There are historians who trace it back to the very origins of racial capitalism, that in order to justify importing a bunch of African people to the Americas to do what was not only punishing and unpaid labor, but generally they were deployed into areas that killed people quickly. They were deployed to do extremely dangerous work in areas where there was, you know, a lot of infectious diseases, you know, with very little in the way of nutrition and healthcare, And essentially the, the black laborers that were imported, and I would probably include indigenous Americans as well, because they were the first slave labor force that settler colonists from Europe tapped into. So one of the the main rationales for importing Africans and for deploying indigenous people was really that they don't feel pain the same way that Europeans do. Uh, and that was, you know, one of the moral justifications. There needed to be moral justifications because a lot of the colonial project revolved around Christian missionizing as well. And so there was the pretense of a moral system, you know, as racial capitalism unfolded, that missionary activity coupled with colonial projects of enslavement and land acquisition, there there was a Christian rationale, <laughs> you know, that not only was it morally good for untamed and religiously and spiritually uninitiated indigenous and black people to be recruited into this project, but the kinds of labor that they were assigned as a part of this project were okay for them because they were physiologically very different than European people. And so this, this fiction that Black and also Indigenous people don't feel pain in the same way was kind of a critical feature of the whole project, colonial and, and therefore evolving racial capitalist system that we see today. So I think there's a really deep history to that. And so we see traces of that kind of logic in American medicine from its origins. And, you know, I think others have written in a lot of detail about all of the medical experimentation that happened on black and brown bodies starting centuries ago and the way that the, the very foundations of the medical specialties that we see taught in academic medicine now rest on, on those early experiments and treatments that really as a justification rested on this idea that the people being experimented on, like the, the women that had these really serious gynecological procedures performed on them, mostly African enslaved women without anesthesia, that it was okay because they weren't feeling the pain from that. So there are very deep roots to this belief that kind of, they sustain our enterprise to this very day. And one way that we see it in real time now is not only in opioid prescribing patterns, right? That on average, white physicians and other prescribers will prescribe pain, identify pain as a problem and prescribe medication for pain disproportionately to white patients. That's a very well identified pattern. 
But there also is the persistent issue of medical experimentation on black and brown bodies. Uh, that still happens. There's a reason why most academic medical centers leading, you know, research medical research centers are located in poor black and brown neighborhoods. That has been the practice because that has been the place where uh, subjects for research can be recruited. So it's a very, very deeply rooted belief system that persists as a fundamental core tenet of our medical practice and research in this country. And training, because most of us who've trained in medicine have trained on poor black and brown bodies. That's where we get a lot of our training because we're the ones deployed. I'll speak for myself. I was sent in, you know, for the public patients, the publicly insured, mostly black and brown patients. It was okay to send me in as a second or third year medical student who had no clue what I was doing, you know, and, and do the, my first cervical exam, you know, on, on a patient that had to kind of tolerate my inexperience um, and all the pain that went along with that. It's okay to do that in medical training. These are your guinea pigs. This is where you get your basic um, exposures, your initial exposures. And then you go on to more valuable people for whom that's not acceptable as you get more experience and, and are able to perform your care with, with more skill. So then this racist understanding of how white versus black people experience pain ironically makes white people more vulnerable to this new wave of of prescription opioid addiction. It's a great example of how everybody pays because black and brown people's pain is neglected, as Helena was saying, and white people's pain is attended to in a way that doesn't serve their interests. And this really goes back to some of the overarching points about whiteness being a system. It's not a, it's not a kind of person or a group of people. It's a system that is most powerfully aligned with the engines of, of capitalist profit making. And it makes promises to white people. And you can see those in OxyContin's marketing, right? Those are the promises, but those also aren't necessarily delivered. You know, everybody pays, some people pay more, uh, but everybody pays for the way that we allow uh, or that we insist that whiteness warp the way we handle basic human problems like pain and suffering. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. One thing I would just say about the sort of deep legacy of racism and how we manage pain is it's we're not talking about like things that are particularly subjective. There's research showing that patients with long bone fracture, right? <laughs> Uh, that black patients with long bone fracture are less likely to be prescribed pain medicine than white patients. And I, I think that is horrifying that for something as objective as a long bone fracture, right, we're going to deny some people pain medication and give it to others. Um, so, you know, just if, just in case people think that this is not a, a problem that is ongoing. One of the things that's pretty notable is that in the mid-1990s, it wasn't just opioid prescribing that shot through the roof. It was also benzodiazepines, which are sedatives like, like Xanax, Clonopin, uh, Ambien, and also uh, amphetamine and amphetamine-like drugs, which are, are prescribed for ADHD in the U.S. And the rise in prescription for each of these was racialized in the way it was for opioids. Each one had their own distinctive story 
of why white people were especially suffering from the, the illness that those drugs treated with the benzos, with uh, like Xanax, um, anxiety has long been associated under a, a variety of different names with white and middle-class Americans because of a stereotype uh, that they have this complex interiority that causes them to ruminate on things and produce these complex uh, fears. And so as a matter of fact, that there's this contrast between people who experience anxiety, who are these advanced, intelligent racial types, and people who experience fear. Uh, and fear you don't you don't treat with the pharmaceuticals. So these stories are, are bigger than opioids themselves. Opioids are one of uh, are a, a really compelling example and a particularly horrific example. But it's important to recognize they're not distinctive to opioids. This is a story about racial capitalism more than it is a story about opioids. I'm Astra Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, a podcast that helps us understand the past so we can organize for a better future. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash the dig. You definitely know about The Dig since you're listening to this podcast, and you probably know about Jacobin, which helps put out The Dig. But you might not know about Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy. Capitalism is once again up for debate. Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy, is a scholarly journal produced by Jacobin Foundation that aims to do everything it can to promote and deepen this conversation. Its focus, as the title suggests, is to develop a theory and strategy with capitalism as its target, both in the North and in the Global South. It is an ambitious agenda, but this is a time for thinking big. You can check out Catalyst's great essays, including contributions from Vivek Chipper, Cedric Johnson, Noam Chomsky, and Leah Yippy, and subscribe in print for just $20 for an entire year by going to bit.ly slash digcatalyst. That's bit.ly slash digcatalyst, all lowercase. We've been talking a lot about the emergence of the opioid crisis, and now I want to talk about how racial capitalism shaped the treatment approach to the opioid crisis. And critical here is that the approval of buprenorphine marked a, an absolute sea change in the treatment of opioid addiction by allowing an opioid maintenance drug to be prescribed in a doctor's office and taken at home. There was a, quote, effort to quite literally whitewash addiction and addiction treatment to replace the stigma and aggressive policing of methadone and replace it with the cleaner, medicalized empathy of buprenorphine. But before we get to buprenorphine, let, let's discuss methadone. How has and does the methadone system operate, and what is the history that has made it to function through, through what you call a, quote, clinical criminological frame? In the late 60s and early 70s, thanks in large part to civil rights activism and feminists, there was a challenge to the to the cultural bases of this segregated way of dealing with drugs so that that challenged the idea that white people didn't get addicted to drugs and that the black and brown people who did uh, got addicted because of, of their own unique racial failings. And uh, that that challenge led to a brief moment of, of rethinking drug policy in a variety of different ways. And one of the new ways was a, a long-acting opioid methadone that could uh, stave off any 
troubles with withdrawal symptoms for 24 hours. This was introduced as a legal way to, um, to care for people with addiction. And this was the first time uh, that an opioid could be prescribed to somebody solely to treat addiction since the early 20th century. That had been outlawed in the early 20th century in the setup of this segregated system. But because you know racism was challenged, but it wasn't overcome, methadone was implemented or was sold or was billed as a way to deal with crime equally, if not more so, than as a way to care for Black and brown people with heroin addiction. And as a result, it was implemented through a, a set of carceral mechanisms. In other words, people were carefully surveilled. They were punished if they didn't follow the treatment regimen. And the outcomes were measured by whether people committed crimes or not. This is much more akin to a carceral response, a criminal justice response, than a medical one. Even so, it was this remarkable crack in the segregated edifice of American drug markets. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when we look at um, methadone today, it's still captured by this punitive logic, right? So it's regulated through this very strict set of federal regulations. People that are given methadone are generally required to go every day to a clinic where the dose of methadone is um, observed it's given in a liquid form predominantly, and that's uh, to prevent diversion, right? So that people can't sort of, you know, smuggle it out. Methadone clinics are, are typically overrepresented in, in black and brown communities. And so I think what we can say about methadone is it's never really been fully medicalized, despite the history that sort of, or maybe because, <laughs> despite and because of the history that, uh, that David has laid out for us. And, and because of that, methadone also, I think, is still widely perceived as substituting one drug for another, right? It never really made it to sort of legitimate medication. Um, and that's one of the ways that we can contrast it with buprenorphine, although there's, it's, it's, it's not quite as simple a picture as all of that. But methadone, I think, still really does in, inhabit this semi-criminalized and certainly very punitive space. When it comes to the racial identity of methadone, which um, in 1971, as the major weapon in President Nixon's war on drugs, had a, it had a, a black and brown image, even though Nixon was responding not only to the widespread perception that somehow heroin trade was connected to the race riots. So heroin had been tied to the idea of a, a race crisis in the United States. And uh, there was certainly media coverage of, you know, very sensationalist media, media coverage of heroin use in the inner cities and a linkage to the theories about pathological black families. It fed the idea among white Americans that the inner cities were kind of a hotbed for crime Heroin was a big part of that, and it led to white flight and disinvestment from center cities to this day. There was all that history. Another, another con uh, constituent that President Nixon had in mind was returning Vietnam veterans, many of whom were white. But it was really a perceived crisis of returning Vietnam veterans who were, had gotten addicted to heroin in Southeast Asia, plus in black and brown inner city heroin crisis that led to Nixon's adopting methadone as a major weapon. And it was it's a complicated story, but it was seen when it comes to race and drugs as kind of a, a more humane liberal approach than out-and-out 
criminalization. So for example, in New York City, which is the city that really initially did the methadone trials and really rolled out methadone maintenance early on, Mayor Lindsay uh, in 69, conveniently latched on to methadone as a kind of a third way, right? Because he was caught politically between those who were crying out for heavier incarceration, you know, in the setting of the, the beginning, beginnings of Rockefeller drug laws in New York versus black and brown communities who were crying out for decriminalization or, you know, less surveillance, it was not a satisfactory answer in the end to black and brown communities, but the liberal white establishment latched onto methadone as a as a, a, a compromise. And then there are other local politics in D.C. also involving actually the introduction of methadone in jails and prisons outright. So jails and prisons were a major place where methadone maintenance was first rolled out. And indeed, methadone, the very earliest trials of methadone happened in Lexington, Kentucky, in what was essentially a prison for people who were addicted, so, where a lot of research was taking place on addiction treatment. So methadone has this very long and kind of sordid history with a lot of interconnections with race politics. And to this day, if you talk to people about what's their image of a methadone patient, it's most likely going to be a black and brown poor person. There may be some images of poor whites that crop up as well, but very much in the American imagination and then also in actual practice, black and brown, poor people disproportionately um, on methadone as opposed to buprenorphine, which from the very beginning, it was rolled out as a treatment that deliberately was marketed to affluent and middle-class white people with the resources to pay for it. And the statistics bore us out from the very beginning of buprenorphine's legalization for private office use. You know, the study in the early 2000s, just after its approval, showed 91% of the patients were white and over half of them had call it some college education and had been employed at baseline. So that tells you right there who was getting it. And then 20 years later, there was a repeat study of who was getting buprenorphine nationally that showed that white Americans with opioid use disorder were three to four times as likely as black Americans with opioid use disorder who were in clinical care. You know, these are people who were under the care of a doctor, three to four times as likely to get prescribed buprenorphine for opioid use disorder. So from the very beginning, methadone has been very much defined as a, you know, a black and brown drug in the American imagination attached to a whole set of perceived crisis in the black and brown inner city and also um, policies, you know, social welfare kind of oriented policies that were rolled out late 60s, early 70s. It was intimately connected to that. So I think that's why we're left with this legacy of this very different racialization, racial identity of methadone as opposed to buprenorphine and other opioids. Well, buprenorphine, I think, was really brought to market to, you know, to, quote, solve the methadone problem, right? But solve it just for some people. And, you know, throughout the sort of the debates about buprenorphine, it was contrasted to methadone and the, and the the policy problem they had to solve is that methadone was so strictly regulated that it wasn't going to be palatable to, to white consumers, nor was it very palatable to um, pharmaceutical companies, right, who are looking for uh, something that's going to be much more lucrative, you know. And so there's a way in which you can't really even, I think, talk about buprenorphine without understanding um, how, how it was brought to market um, in relationship to this history we're talking about with methadone. And I, I want to pause and just emphasize the extreme 
carcerality of of this treatment. Imagine having to go to a doctor's office every day for the rest of your life to take a medication and for absolutely no medically legitimate purpose. I mean, like it isn't dialysis. People have to go in every day because they're presumptive criminals. Meanwhile, people who have access to the right insurance and a family doctor can get a drug that is pharmacologically indistinguishable or close to indistinguishable for the exact same purpose. That's that's a really good point. And many people have commented on the fact that methadone maintenance treatment is the only treatment that is surveilled by the DEA directly. You know, so methadone clinics have to be DEA certified and audited. And not only do you have to go to a clinical practitioner every day under most circumstances to get methadone maintenance treatment, but the clinics themselves are often located very far away from the the clinic or hospital, the main clinic or hospital that sponsors the methadone clinic. They're often located in low-income neighborhoods that they aren't well organized to resist locating methadone clinics nearby. And if you go into a lot of methadone clinics, you get the feeling that this is not a, a healthcare space. This is, you know, the, even the architecture and the, you know, the colors on the walls and the way that there are bulletproof glasses often at the desk where you get handed your methadone cup. It's usually a liquid. These are all signals that this is a criminal legal space. It is not a healthcare setting. And you have to be watched while you take it. And often you're regularly urine tested and someone follows you into the bathroom to watch you peeing into a cup. So this is the experience every day of people who are on methadone, quote unquote, treatment. So there's a very big gap between standard medical practice and what happens in methadone clinics that are set apart by regulations, by geography, by design of the clinic itself and the practitioners. You have to have a specialty in methadone treatment to work in one of these places. It's a it's a specialized niche. Most people training in medicine and even addiction medicine don't have exposure to methadone clinics. It dramatizes just how how powerful the segregated forces are because we I mean we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that this is still an FDA-approved quality-regulated opioid that access to one of these white market drugs that is safer and is regulated with an eye towards consumer uh, protection in some ways, that even this uh, kind of remarkable departure from the policy from the past half century, when this was just completely and utterly unavailable and you were left entirely to the mercies of the prohibition markets and that's punishment, the authorities built this huge system, assuming that this was going to be this incredibly dangerous thing to do. You're letting people into white markets who you are presumptively criminal. And so all of these protections built around it just show that this one little move that doesn't fit into the system has this this enormous gridwork of punitive, destructive, and stigmatizing protections built around it, not for the people who use it, but to be protected from them. So it, it's sad, but not surprising that it took white middle class people becoming the face of the opioid crisis to to bring buprenorphine about. But given that methadone and buprenorphine are pharmacologically doing the same thing and, and are used to treat the same thing, how did this dual track system then endure once buprenorphine, an obviously superior approach to methadone, was on the scene with white middle class people 
prescribed buprenorphine by their doctor than taking in the privacy of their homes with poor people and black and Latino poor people in particular remaining in this system disproportionately that is far more onerous and carceral, the methadone system. Why Why didn't buprenorphine simply supplant methadone across the board? You know, one of the, the problems inherent in medicalized solutions is that racial inequity is baked into our medical system, right? In medical marketing and medical consumption. And so like, I, I increasingly believe, and I say this as someone who came out of public health, that medical solutions to social problems are only going to increase and reinscribe racial disparities. So we know from our research that from the very beginning, buprenorphine had to be white. You know, it, it was compelled to be white by our racial capitalist system. The pharmaceutical manufacturers, Reckitt Benkees or Pharma, wouldn't have succeeded in getting it deregulated and legalized for office-based treatment if it was seen as a treatment that would get into the hands of black and brown populations that for you know centuries had been framed as more susceptible to addiction. So it was clear that to everyone that the, the target market was a white market that had insurance to pay or the means, private means to pay for an expensive medication. The cost of buprenorphine compared to methadone, the cost differential is huge. Methadone is about 40 cents a dose, depending on how big the dose is. Buprenorphine, last I checked, was about $9 a dose uh, in the formulation that's most common, Suboxone. So there's a huge difference in price. And, you know, Jules was alluding to the fact that the healthcare system here, by definition, locks most low-income black and brown people out of primary care, traditional primary care offices. There are some, you know, safety net primary care clinics. It's awfully hard to get a practitioner. It's awfully hard to get an appointment. And so that's one reason why all pharma manufacturers that are rolling out a new patented expensive medication, patented meaning they hold exclusive rights for a certain period of years after the medication is first approved, And that patent gives them exclusive rights to market that medication for X number of years. And the number of years depends a lot um, on the circumstances. But in the case of buprenorphine, they actually, the manufacturer managed to keep, hold on to the patent for, you know, over 20 years. One of our colleagues that's worked with us in doing this kind of background research, Carolyn Parker, she's a medical anthropologist, coined the term pharmaceutical splitting in conversation with me about a strategy that we were uncovering. And this is what the opioid manufacturers did. First, they split trustworthy, legitimate consumers away from untrustworthy, illegitimate consumers. The strategy was to advertise these medications as safe for white middle-class, reliable, you know, the imagery was grandparents, soccer moms. And then as time went on, they began to say, listen, prescribers, you need to start screening people. You know, you, you have not done your job. We've done our job. You haven't done your job. Do they have a history of substance use? Do they show signs of risk? You know, are they from risky groups or demographics? So they're saying it's not our responsibility. It's your provider, prescriber responsibility to start screening people for risk, you know, because the problem has been created by your lack of diligence around pre-screening people to make sure they are trustworthy patients. But then the other splitting had to do uh, between different categories of opioids themselves, you know, and so some opioids 
are more healthful and health-promoting than others. So this idea of pharmaceutical splitting, I think, is also useful for understanding the complexities of this kind of strategy and pivoting around diagnosis and treatment that pharma companies play. The pharma manufacturers, they know this is the system. They know who their market is. There are a few exceptions. So for example, these days, HIV medications. Well, we know where HIV is concentrated these days. Low-income black and brown populations that don't have the same kind of access to healthcare and prevention. Um, so they end up with HIV. So a manufacturer who wants to sell HIV medications, well, okay, that's different. You know, the initial target population is not affluent white population or insured po- white population, but for the ma- vast majority of new medications and biotech devices, all the manufacturers know who their target is initially. It's the people who can pay for it, and it's people who have access, regular access to doctors. So that was baked in. But in addition to that, it has been a very tricky business in the pharma industry to market drugs that are a treatment for addiction. That has been a bugaboo for decades. This is what came out of my interviews with pharma manufacturers and and drug policy people, that this has been a very difficult area for pharmaceutical companies to break into because the stigma of addiction and the suspicion around its use seeps over to the manufacturer. Also, it's so regulated, especially if you're introducing an opioid as a treatment for opioid dependence, huge regulatory hurdles. So Reckitt Benckiser knew that they had to frame this as a medication that would only fall into the hands of quote-unquote trustworthy patients in order to get buy-in from regulators at the federal level. So by definition, it had to be targeted towards that market. And within our current healthcare system, it is it has remained in that market until, <laughs> until number one, patents ran out. So the original formulations of Suboxone, the patents ran out. And the older formulation stayed on market as it as it opened itself up to generic manufacture, stayed on market. And around the same time that the discourse around the shifting demographics of overdose came about and political pressure to make buprenorphine available in public clinics started to be applied much more heavily. Uh, so we're beginning, it's, it's a shifting target, right? We're beginning to see that Suboxone is being, and Buprenorphine, the, the, the generic name, is, is being introduced into public insurance settings. Uh, but after the original patent has run out and after the demographics of black and brown overdose are becoming obvious and the machinery, the public pressure for publicly insured patients to get access is, is applied. This is something that's not restricted to buprenorphine. It's a time-tested strategy on the part of pharma manufacturers. They know that as the clock runs out on a patent, their strategies for marketing have to shift. And so they no longer have the narrow affluent white clientele in mind as the patent approaches expiration and they have to widen their clientele and they have to go for, rather than high cost, narrow market segment, they have to go for lower cost, bigger market segment. segment. Because another way to make money is to have higher volume with a smaller margin. And so that is actually what's happening with Suboxone. And new formulations are being introduced all the time with claims of um, you know, superiority. But there's a whole racial capitalist logic that is bound to the life cycle of any new drug or device 
And there's buprenorphine and suboxone are no exception to that. So we're beginning to see buprenorphine being rolled out in public clinics, in jails and prisons. I don't want to take credit away from all of the activists who've really insisted in making it available there. They've also had a big role to play, but I think it's no accident that the time sequence. Those of us who work in the area of, quote unquote, social determinants of health, uh, there's a theory of fundamental causes of disease that was put forth by two medical sociologists, Bruce Link and Joe Phelan, in the mid-90s. One thing that it predicts is that in settings of high levels of social inequality, such as we have in the U.S., where there are huge gaps between rich and poor, black and white, etc., that if you roll out a new healthcare technology without addressing those social inequalities, you are going to widen rather than narrow the health disparities and inequalities, despite the claims of the manufacturers that this new drug is going to narrow inequalities. You know, that's often a selling point. You know, all we need is a new treatment for X and we're going to solve the problems of inequalities in health. It turns out to be just the opposite because people with means are going to have access to that new technology. So that's exactly what we've seen playing out with buprenorphine, uh, otherwise known as Suboxone. Jules, I wanted to follow up on your point about the problems that follow from treating a social issue through a narrow medical lens. And and earlier, we were discussing the 1990s being the decade of the brain. And part of that was the rise of the brain model of addiction, which located the source of addiction in the brain rather than in, say, the immorality or depravity of drug users. And and so the purpose was a, was a noble one about medicalizing the problem instead of making it about drug users being bad people. But but you all write that this move instead ended up erasing structural factors by focusing on a disembodied and socially decontextualized human brain, a brain belonging to an unmarked and thus implicitly white subject. You write, quote, the scientists involved wanted to counteract a drug war mentality by erasing the social context of drug use. Yet, they paradoxically set the stage for renewed racial stratification of opioids. Is this something that we're seeing here in the persistence of of this two-tiered treatment system, a persistence that, for the reasons Helena mentioned, is is, is finally beginning to, to break down? And is it also why, as you mentioned in your book, we're seeing some buprenorphine advocates arguing that medication alone, without any psychosocial interventions, is sufficient to address the crisis? Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. So the neuroscientific understanding of addiction, right, addiction as a, you know, quote, chronic relapsing brain disease, um, I think did come out of good intentions, right, to try to move away from this criminalized punitive understanding of addiction as a moral failing that should be treated through incarceration, right? But the problem, as you write in the book, is that what neuroscience does is take away all of the social context and social structures, social inequities, right, that play out um, and that we know that um, drug use and problematic drug use is a complicated phenomenon and solutions to it need to be equally complicated, right? And so when Helen is talking about social determinants, right, without looking at sort of structural factors like Um, social inequity, things like housing, right? Things like basic income, access to medical care. There's no way to solve this problem of, you know, quote, addiction and problematic drug use um, without taking those things into account because addiction is a complex phenomenon 
that I don't believe, and I don't think uh, David or Helena believe, can be reduced to um, this neuroscientific understanding. One thing I'll say about addiction neuroscience is, is it's the one of the prevailing ways of understanding addiction in this country, and certainly um, is a model of addiction that has been heralded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, which funds a vast majority of research on addiction um, in the U.S. I can point back to what we were talking about earlier about pseudo-addiction and what under what conditions can uh, opioid use be safe or even beneficial for people and under what conditions can it be harmful. One of the things that brain disease does is it erases that question and it becomes just what's going on in an, in an individual brain. And in some ways, you know, that the fundamental question is under what circumstances do individual risks become broad social crises? We're not going to eliminate drug-related harm. I mean, that's just, just a facet of human existence, but we can maybe prevent it from exploding into these major crises, such as the ones that, you know, we talk about the opioid crisis. There has been an opioid crisis in black and brown communities for a century uh, surrounding around, around heroin. Like we don't necessarily even need to know brain chemistry and brain neurochemistry to address the, the social and political problems that, that magnified those individual risks into this continuing crisis. None of this is new. In fact, you write that the 21st century opioid crisis is America's third pharmaceutical addiction crisis. And each crisis has come as a surprise because it was presumed that middle class white people, what you call the doctor visiting classes, would not become addicted to a medication prescribed by their doctor. And yet, you write, quote, it drew on a century-old system of narcotic segregation in the U.S., in which some drugs become illegal through association with non-white users, and other drugs are legal and are deemed medicines reserved for white and middle-class consumers. In short, a system in which the whiteness of certain drugs medicalizes them. How did these addiction crises around prescribed morphine, I think beginning in the late 19th century, and prescribed barbiturates and amphetamine stimulants in the mid-20th century compare to what we've seen over the past two decades with, with opioids? And then what's revealed about those past medical addiction crises when they're compared to the popular portrayal and official response to, to contemporaneous illicit drug use among poor and racialized people? It's a big question, I, I guess. So these crises push against this idea that what's happening in the 21st century is this unprecedented thing where addiction is leaving the places where it, quote, belongs and cropping up in places where it doesn't. And it really highlights how important the project of forgetting about addiction to pharmaceuticals among white communities has been to the drug war apparatus to sustain this segregated system, to make that segregated system look like it is a logical, rational response to realities on the ground rather than a political project to privilege white communities, but also even more so to enable uh, policing of black and brown communities and profiting of white market companies, pharmaceutical companies. So that first opioid crisis in the late 19th century was just simply industrialization brought a whole range of new products that consumers were unfamiliar with and posed a bunch of new dangers because the kinds of rules of 
living in a market were designed for smaller types of trading and more familiar types of products. And so there were a whole range of, of new dangers that consumers faced, everything from toxic cosmetics to, to dangerous food. Among those new products were more powerful drugs, like the active principle of plant drugs like morphine and cocaine. As these drugs were sold with relatively few limits, there was a rise of this kind of behavior that was distressing at the time of compulsive use, even when it was harmful, that would later be called addiction. This occurred primarily in consumers who were buying through medical markets from physicians and pharmacists, uh, and these consumers were called patients. It also took place to a smaller extent in popular or informal markets, because there weren't a lot of rules about it uh, among uh, people who did not have a status as a patient. And the whole system was built when white middle-class reformers looked at this setup and they saw through their own social prejudices, they saw the consumers known as patients were innocent victims who needed to be protected from markets that had run amok. Those other consumers, they uh, began to call them dope fiends, people who were who were purposefully deviant and and using drugs, not because they were health-seeking, but because they wanted undeserved pleasure. And so this was the, the set of reforms introduced to protect those consumers called patients and to protect society against those consumers called dope fiends was the, the foundation of this system. And it quickly became a machine for teaching false truths about drugs and addiction, because in white markets, people who purchased potentially addictive drugs had a whole bunch of safeguards to, to make it less likely that they would suffer harms. Even if they became addicted, there were, you know, the, the predecessor of private practice buprenorphine prescribing in the 21st century was private practice morphine prescribing in the early 20th century. It was technically illegal, but the whole system was designed to police cities and racialized poor people. And as a result, there wasn't a lot of policing of physicians engaging in that. So addiction among white people became less visible and also less harmful. And uh, as a result, you could have this idea that the reformers were right. The, the consumers called patients, once we told them, hey, these drugs are addictive, you should stop using them, they just stopped. But these other folks, their opioid crisis didn't become less visible. It became more visible because they kept getting arrested or they were forced into desperate situations where they showed up at charity hospitals begging for help. And so they became the public face of addiction. And what this meant is that the ground was prepared for this second white market crisis because when new drugs came in to replace morphine and cocaine as, as kind of miracle drugs, these were the barbiturates, sedatives, and amphetamine stimulants, uh, they were permitted to be sold to white consumers with very few limitations through the medical system for three decades. Because people forgot about the idea and possibility of medical addiction, just as they had by the 1990s. Right. And when we say forget here, we mean a verb that requires a lot of work. They didn't just misplace it. It was it was a, a purposeful work, and it was work that was maintained in practice. It wasn't some person saying, this doesn't happen to white people. It was, you just looked out around you when you read in the newspaper, when you read about addiction, it wasn't happening to these privileged type of consumers. So it produced this other major 
public health crisis, this time with a lot of fatal overdose because it, uh, barbiturates were one of the key drugs and those can, can cause fatal overdose along with a bunch of other things like traffic accidents if they're uh, used in ways that are, that are unsafe. So once, the, once uh, the political conditions made it possible to address this crisis, we can see a real similarity in that these, these white market crises are resolved through policies that, that are problematic, but that are much closer approximations of how you could protect people from drug harms. Uh, and that involves robustly regulating the people who are selling to make sure that they're prioritizing consumer safety over profit and are aware of what the risks are at, while making sure to put the well-being of the consumers, uh, have that be the top priority, not to see them as the enemy, not to see them as the as the dangerous factor. There, there was this remarkably successful addressing of those white market problems. But once again, with the exception, the incredibly poor and um, and brutally carceral exception of methadone, those policies were not applied to these other kinds of drug consumers who had now graduated from being dope fiends to being junkies uh, in, in popular parlance. Uh, and they were still seen as unworthy of care. They were still seen as um, either innately racially flawed or as, as immoral and purposefully deviant. And so these previous episodes reveal that the project of, of forgetting and drug policy isn't a kind of a good faith reaction to what's happening on the ground. It's this enormous social enterprise of maintaining a segregated drug system that while it harms everyone, it, it, it serves the purposes of the white consumers known as patients better. Uh, and it also provides opportunities for profiting all the way through from the major corporations that are sort of those truly aligning engines of racial capitalism. There's this relationship that you're drawing out here between harsh black market or prohibition market repression and weak legal market regulation. And you write, quote, only by shedding the mystification of whiteness can we recognize that the drug war and pharmaceutical policy are connected elements of a single unequal system for providing and regulating psychoactive drugs. What would be the ramifications of recognizing this for the regulatory state, for the drug war, I mean, more broadly for the entire organization of, of this country? I guess more specifically, would this require the state recognizing that what's directly killing people right now in such extraordinary numbers isn't so much drug addiction which might be a necessary condition, but not a su sufficient one. But rather, what's killing people is an unregulated drug supply. Yeah, I mean, ab absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things, right, that tracing this history and the sort of racial politics and racial capitalism of how we've dealt with, with opioids in this country shows us that the problem isn't drugs per se, right, that there are ways to safely regulate um, and create access to drugs for people that are going to use them. And, you know, we know from drug policy and other parts of the world that there are very successful programs of things like prescribed heroin. So, yeah, I think what we, what we need to do is sort of take a step back from what we think about drugs 
in this racialized form, right, which has led to this bifurcated system of criminalization for some and access through, you know, quote, medical necessity or medical need for others and try to develop a rational drug policy. But beyond that, I think what we're saying in the book is that these have grown out of much more deeply embedded systemic inequities having to do with disinvestment in black and brown communities, having to do with, you know, housing policy, having to do with like these very fundamental structural issues, you know, that also need to get addressed. So as someone who works in the drug policy space, I, I can certainly do a whole wrap on what I think are sort of drug policy reform solutions. But I would be remiss to say that that alone would be sufficient without also trying to address these more upstream causes of, of racial capitalism and racial inequity in this country. There are many calling for reparations, and particularly when it comes to the drug war. The drug war has been a prominent tool for not only policing and inciting state-sponsored violence in Black and brown communities and greatly accelerating the incarceration rate of black, in black and brown communities. It's also been an engine for, as Jules was pointing out, disinvestment from those neighborhoods at the same time. There's been just deliberate reduction in public services and the availability of loans, um, support for small business development, all of the things that lead to a sustainable life in these areas. And so many are, are saying that if you really want to address the root cause of the harms from our racialized drug policies at the same time that you promote the social conditions that have been shown over and over again, prevent harmful drug use on many levels, not just the immediate harm reduction of preventing an overdose death or, you know, an HIV infection, but more upstream, you know, creating conditions that don't leave people in a desperate place where on the one hand, Drug trade is the only industry that they have entree into. And second, that they're subject to such what we call structural violence, that their day-to-day existence is produces immense suffering and misery. And often substances are the only recourse that they have to address those problems. If we want to address those kinds of upstream conditions, then we have to reinvest in these neighborhoods. And we have to re- we have to not only reverse decades of public policy, but including things like urban renewal. I think most people are familiar with redlining. And if you map on early deaths in inner cities, it's kind of a perfect match with those neighborhoods that where residents were denied loans for home ownership or small business lending over many decades that greatly impoverished them, made them unable to weather all kinds of emergencies of illness in the family, made them unable to pay for higher education, you know, intergenerational effects on on health in those areas. And so if we want to really address that, then what we do is we channel public investment deliberately to those areas. And so one thing that many drug policy uh, reformers are lobbying for is for 
money <laughs> to be invested in those areas as a part of drug policy, uh, as, as a part of a different kind of drug policy. One interesting form of that has taken is in areas where marijuana has been legalized, either for medical purposes or non-medical purposes, there's a, a gold rush of marijuana, <laughs> of marijuana industries, because it can be such a profitable um, industry. As you might guess, the people who have the capital and um, are well positioned to jump in there are not black and brown people. They're not the ones that have suffered tremendously under harsh sentencing for marijuana possession and use. And so there's a call for, just as a starting point, the tax revenue generated by legalized marijuana to be deliberately reinvested in those neighborhoods and to support small businesses that are run by people who are directly impacted by the really racially oppressive drug laws um, that hone into marijuana in particular in many cases. So that's just one example, but there are just myriad ways that we could pivot in not only drug policy, but broader social and economic policy to address the root causes that really have led us to much of the devastation and harm that we see now. You know, one of, I mean, one of the things that um, treating drug problems as either a medical problem or a criminal legal problem, what they have in common is they are both individualizing a problem that is systemic um, in its origins and, and in its solutions. Yeah. One of the arguments here is that drug policy hasn't been about drugs and hasn't been about uh, protecting people. It's been a vehicle for accomplishing other social ends. And that drug policy has just been one element of a whole panoply of policies designed to entrench racial and economic inequalities, right? And so in some ways, the right question isn't, how are we going to address the problems of drugs, which I, I think that's a relatively straightforward kind of practical problem, how to protect people, et cetera, from these desirable but also dangerous products. The challenge is, what are we going to do about drug policy. And if you're going to try to do something about drug policy, you have to do something about all its cousin policies, because it's just one part of this set of policies that that have created these devastating inequalities. And if it is right to undo them in drug policy, it is right to undo them across the board. And, and just undoing one of them leaves that whole malleable protean system of whiteness able to reassert itself in some other way. So I, I just, I think you guys are so right on in talking about the need to get to the, get to the heart of the issue, which is not drugs and isn't even drug policy. It's the whole system of whiteness and racial inequality. Helena Hansen, Jules Netherland, and David Hertzberg, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Helena Hansen is an addiction psychiatrist and anthropologist and professor of psychiatry and anthropology at the University of California, Los Angeles. Jules Netherland is a sociologist and policy advocate and managing director of the Department of Research and Academic Engagement at the Drug Policy Alliance. David Hertzberg is a professor of history at the State University of New York at Buffalo. All three are the authors of Whiteout, How Racial Capitalism Changed the Color of Opioids in America. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that 
The police, the judiciary, and the administration are not deputies of civil society itself, which manages its own general interest in and through them. Rather, they are office holders of the state whose purpose is to manage the state in opposition to civil society. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. We are recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Frankos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it is on iTunes or another such platform, please rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling people you know to check out the pod. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. <laughs>